This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. It is great to be reminded of the lavish love of God for us. We're going to now turn our hearts to the scriptures. So grab yourself another cup of coffee. If you need another donut from the kitchen, grab it right now and then pick up your scriptures, turn on your iPads, and we're going to Acts chapter 17 to continue in our series. And we're actually going to look at the message of the gospel, the lavish love of God proclaimed for salvation and transformation of the world. And we're going to look at as three different episodes in the first part of Acts 17, and then we'll take the second part of Acts 17 next week. And in the first three episodes of Acts 17, we're going to see the message of the gospel reasoned. We're going to see the message of the gospel rejected, and we're going to see the message of the gospel received. Those are kind of the three key marks that we're going to be going through. So grab your Bibles. Here we go. Acts chapter 17. We'll start in verse one. Now, when they had passed through Amphilippus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women who were in the town. So here we are picking up Paul's continued missionary journeys. And at this point, he's left Philippi. We looked at last week and he's traveling with Timothy and Silas and he comes to a new city of Thessalonica. And Thessalonica is kind of the capital city of a region called Macedonia. It is the most prosperous, well-known, influential city in that area. And kind of Paul's MO, as we've been watching, is first to go to the synagogues. And that's where he's going to find his Jewish believing community. And there he wants to show them that the God that they worship has sent the promised Messiah as promised through the Old Testament. And he wants them to see and embrace that this Jesus of Nazareth, who they've heard about, is the promised salvation that God said he would bring. See, Paul is always starting with the Jews and then going to the Gentiles. He says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, God's lavish love for the world for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And so he shows up in this new town and goes to the synagogue, first to the Jew, and then we'll see him turn to the Gentile. But here he begins to reason with them. This, This word reason is that he's going to present an argument, a case, of why Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that they're hoping for in the salvation of God. This reasoning is not that he's argumentative, but that he actually wants to make an argument, a case, so that they would be, as we'll see, persuaded to believe. He's not interested in having just a religious dialogue of, oh, you believe this and I believe that. That's great. We can share our our similarities in believing a faith or a faith in God. No, Paul has a purpose of why he's showing up, why he's willing to have these conversations. And that purpose is to persuade people, to win them to Christ. Now, some people will say, I don't really want to persuade people because people aren't projects. But it's actually the very reason that we persuade people is because people aren't projects. People are people, human beings, 
of high value, made in the image of God, that we want them to know who their heavenly father is, who is the one that has made them, purposed them, and provided salvation for them. And so in our conversations with people, as we reason the gospel out, our aim at some point in that conversation should be to persuade them. And so just look at these words with me. So Acts chapter 17, verse one, contains this idea of his reasoning. He's arguing for the faith. He's explaining to them, see that in verse three, and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This idea of reasoning is this idea that he's going to open up the scriptures. Reasoning with someone is, well, let's look at it together. This is what happened on the road to Emmaus with Jesus. As he opened, he explained how the Messiah would have to fulfill all of these prophecies. And then this idea that he is proving is kind of a Q&A time that they're asking these questions and he's taking time to carefully answer their inquiries. And part of this explaining and proving is that he's proclaiming this publicly. This word of proclamation is that he makes this address so that others can hear it. This is a rich example of how someone would reason out the gospel in hopes that people would be persuaded to believe in Jesus. Now he's with a very Jewish community here. Even the God-fearers, those who were outside the Jewish faith, they hadn't become full converts, were worshiping the God of Israel and knew the scriptures. They're listening here. And so he goes to the scriptures to convince them, to persuade them that Jesus is the Christ. And one of the biggest challenges for Jews of Paul's day and what we would say for Jews of our day is that Jesus being a suffering servant, being crucified, dead and buried, raised to new life, is a stumbling block. It's hard for them to imagine that the Messiah would be a suffering Messiah, a crucified Messiah. Because when you look at the Old Testament, it just seems as though he's going to be a conquering Messiah. And what we know from Jesus's teaching is that he first comes as the suffering servant and he's coming again as the conquering king. And so what Paul has to do is help them see scriptures that maybe they haven't seen in a while or perhaps have forgotten in which God proclaimed that his Messiah, his sent one, would actually suffer. It doesn't say here where he takes them, but I would imagine he probably took them to a place like Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, it describes God's promised one. And he says that he's going to be pierced and crushed, oppressed and afflicted. It says that his promised one, verse nine, that they were going to make his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. He's going to be put to death. And so what Paul is saying is this Messiah, this Jesus, the Christ. Remember, Christ is the title of Messiah in Greek. That was promised that he would suffer and that he would die. And his examples right here in Isaiah, he might have taken him to Psalm chapter 22. This is a psalm, a messianic psalm, speaking of God's promised one. In Psalm 22, there's kind of this picture of the crucifixion. Remember that Jesus was nailed to the cross in his hands and his feet. And there people went by and they mocked him. They said, he saved others. How come he can't save himself? They divided their clo his clothes up and they cast lots for what they would take. And Paul probably takes him back here to Psalm 22 and says, remember what was said right here in Psalm chapter 22, verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them 
and for my clothing, they cast lots. What Paul is unpacking, convincing, persuading, proving is that the life, the death and resurrection that Jesus lived was as it was according to the scriptures, that what was delivered was according to as God promised it. And many people here win, are won over. You see that some in the synagogue are won over to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. We see that many Greeks here, devout Greeks, God-fearing Greeks, are won over and shown that Jesus is the Messiah. And we see that some high, influential, persuasive women in that culture become believers at this moment. Hallelujah. How great is that, that he shows up and wins people to Christ. Later, he writes two letters to this church in Thessalonica. I'd encourage you, maybe if you have time this week, you might want to read 1 Thessalonians, and maybe 2 Thessalonians, where he writes to them about the sufferings that they're experiencing in the town. But he begins 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, commenting on how their faith is actually being known around the Macedonian area, that others are hearing how they received the gospel and they turned from their evil ways, their idols, and they turned to the living God, now waiting for the son's return, our blessed hope that will save us from the day of wrath. And so he comments on how great it is and people are hearing of their conversion. They have responded to the reasoning of the gospel, but not everybody has. Verse six begins with a, or verse five begins with a but. A but clause, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decree of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and from the rest, they let them go. So here's the gospel message that's rejected. So some have received it, have, have come to the place where they've responded to Paul's reasoning. And here are the others that are rejecting it. These are leaders in the community, Jewish leaders of the synagogue. And what we see here in the text is that they were jealous. You have religious leaders that are jealous about what's happening. What's this jealousy? They're, what are they envious about? It's this, is that Paul comes in and persuades people to see that God has fulfilled his promises and that there is salvation in this Jesus. And they turn to follow Jesus as they continue to follow God. And the Jews are envious and jealous that they are losing followers. They're losing their base. And if they lose their base, then perhaps they lose their persuasion within the city. And so because they're envious, they go into the city and they find men that are bent, a rebel rousing wicked men. And they find them and they coerce them. They, they bring them together to form a mob. 
And then they unleash them into the city to cause havoc and chaos. They attack Jason's home and they try to drag Jason out of his house and bring him in front of the courts. What is happening right now? Well, you see this phrase right here? They have, those men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That people have heard about what's happened in Philippi, in other cities. And they're saying that, that those people, Paul, Silas, Timothy, have come here. And because they came here, there's been an out, outpouring of a mob mentality. But pay attention. Is the, is the chaos that's happening in the city a result of this group of people responding to Paul's message? No, it's not, is it? No, this mob is simply being used as an instrument to accomplish someone else's agenda. See, this mob didn't form and, and pour out its anger and its violence because they heard Paul and Timothy and Silas preach these things. No, they're doing that because the religious leaders of the day have brought them together, have funded them, have resourced them, and then put them out in the community to cause problems. See, this is just a page from their playbook. They did the same thing to Jesus. They stirred up the crowds and then brought false witnesses. They brought false testimony against Jesus. And here they try to do the same thing about Paul and Silas, saying that they come and they're trying to proclaim a new king. Like Caesar's not king. We all know that Caesar's king. And so they're saying that this Jesus is king. And so there's kind of half truths here. I mean, yes, Jesus is king, but Jesus's agenda as king isn't to dethrone Caesar. Jesus's agenda as king, when he proclaims the kingdoms come, is not to dethrone Caesar first and foremost, but to dethrone me, to dethrone you from the thrones we sit on our own lives. You see, everybody follows a king. Everybody finds someone that their agenda, that their values, that their interests, that their cause and their ethic becomes their cause and ethic and agenda and values. And so since we should be worshiping God, but have rejected God, we have to replace God as a new king in our life. And we turn away from God and we turn to the created things. And we set up things on the throne of our own life. First and foremost, we probably set up ourselves. We set up ourselves as kings or queens that we get to call the shots, that we get to be the rulers of our own life. And then we set up little kings on our thrones like we love the king of money and we prize and, and pursue the king of financial wealth. Or we make a king of our life, health. And all the decisions that we're making and the worries that we're concerned with are wrapped around this king of health in our life. Or there's other kings that we make with sexual identity or sexual experience. Like this is the most important thing about me. It rules my life. Some have even made their children sit on the throne of their life and their children are kings. And the decisions that they make and how they live and the values they have all stem from their kids sitting on the throne of their life. I'm just gonna tell you, the kids on the throne, that's a messy king. That's a messy king. So when the apostles show up and they do preach King Jesus, and the Jews are jealous because people have left the synagogue now and begin to follow King Jesus, no longer following them, they bring this charge up against the disciples. 
that they have caused this problem, but they're not the ones that caused the riots. The religious leaders did because of their jealousy. And they're jealous that Jesus is taking his kingship, not on Caesar's throne, but on the hearts of men and women. Here's a question for you. If everybody has a king, who's your king? If, if King Jesus is your king, are there some things that have crept up on the throne that don't belong on the throne that only Jesus belongs on? For him to give us his opinions and his agenda, his values and his kingdom ethics, that we would live out of his kingdom of mercy and grace and kindness and forgiveness, letting go of bitterness and hate, letting vengeance be his and not ours. If King Jesus is not your king, who is your king? And does your king love you and care for you? See, the thing about the gospel message that Paul reasoned with them is that God in his benevolent love to save us, sent Jesus to die for us. And that all those who would believe and receive Jesus as king, surrendering their life to Jesus would live in the kingdom of his beloved son. And his kingdom is called life. There is joy and pleasure. There is wonderful pieces to the kingdom of God with an eternal inheritance. And that offer is to anyone, just like the Thessalonians, anyone who would want to turn away from their idols, their little kings, and receive Jesus as king of their life, then they would be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And so what we see in the first episode is here's the, here's the gospel of God's great love, reasoning with them that Jesus is the promised Messiah, we see that some are antagonistic and, and reject the gospel's message because of envy and jealousy stirring up chaos. And then Paul leaves the town and he heads over to another region called Berea, leaving Timothy and Silas. Let's pick it up in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. So Paul and Timothy and Silas actually traveled to Berea and then Paul, and Sil Paul and, uh, is left and Timothy and Silas remain there in Berea as Paul ventures off. And we're gonna pick up his story in Athens. But real quick, this last episode of the gospel received, it's received by the Bereans with eagerness and examination. If the characteristics of the gospel reasoned were the proclamation and the uh, examination, the explaining, the proving, the persuading, those are characteristics of reasoning the gospel out. If you want to be a receiver of the gospel, then the two characteristics that we find here are eagerness and examination. In fact, this is, this is a character trait. This is what Luke means when he says that they are, have, they're more noble than those in Thessalonica. It doesn't mean that they're better than those in Thessalonica. 
Because remember those in Thessalonica re received the gospel and turned and, and came belie became believers. But what we see here in Berea is actually a unique character trait to the Bereans that we should have today too. And that is eagerness and examination. What does eagerness mean? Eagerness is something that people who are hungry and are aware of their needs have. People who are hungry and aware of their needs have an attitude of eagerness. Let me ask you this. How eager, you, eager are you at this moment to have a tire on your car changed? Probably zero. Say you're traveling at night alone with no cell phone service and you get a flat tire. How eager are you to get that tire changed? Immensely eager. Why? Because you became keenly aware of a need and you become hungry for that need to be satisfied. See, the Bereans, what was noble about them is that they knew their spiritual need. They're God fears. They're here in the synagogue as well. But because they're, they're, they're willing to recognize their own needs and be hungry to satisfy that spiritually, when Paul comes and opens up the scriptures with them, their eagerness leads them to examination, to receive what Paul has said, but then go and examine it. This is the noble piece that they don't just receive it and go, oh, that's fine. That's great. And don't ask any questions. They go and actually participate in the work of understanding the gospel. They're, they're kind of self feeders here in Berea. So remember back in Thessalonica, who did all the kind of heavy lifting, the explaining, the examining? Was it not Paul? as he reasoned out the gospel to those in Thessalonica, here in Berea, they partner with him as he explains and then they go and examine so that together they come to this conclusion that Jesus is the savior of the world. This is an attribute that we want as Christians to always be eager to receive truth in the scriptures or what we see in, in the world and then be quick to go and examine it, to think about it. So we're not consuming, ingesting half truths or even lies. This is an attribute that is essential to being a Christian. To be a Christian, we want to be Berean. This is important because Paul tells a church later in Ephesus, this is Acts chapter 20, that after his departure, there are going to be wolves that come into the church. So Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul tells them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And the way that you guard yourself against wolves, potentially wolves that you see online, that you just hear as a Christian pastor and you start listening to their messages, perhaps wolves that could possibly show up in, in home groups or in your community circles and start teaching things that are contrary to God's word, the way that you guard yourself against wolves is to be Berean, to be eager to receive truth, but then to go and make sure that what you heard was true according to the scriptures, just like the Bereans did. This is the verse that tells you to be excited about the messages you hear at Calvary. And then during the week, maybe with your home group, you go and investigate the scriptures yourself so that you know what you heard here is true. Now, the thing you don't want to become, 
is you don't want to become the person that's the stump the pastor person, the food critic person, where you show up to church and all you have your pen, your paper, just looking for the opportunity to slide one thing in there that wasn't quite exactly right. And because it wasn't quite right, you're out of here. That's a critic. You know, like a food critic shows up to a restaurant and they look at all the different foods and they're trying to find an error. No, that's not the posture of the Bereans. The posture of the Bereans is eager to hear the word preached and then going home to examine if what they heard was true. So what we see here in Berea as well is that people come to Christ. Through their examination of the scriptures, they come to Christ. May I speak to you real quick for those of you in the room that maybe are less than convinced that Jesus is the promised savior of the world by which all men and women must be saved. How will you know? It's by investigating. It's by taking the questions that you have, the doubts that are in your mind, the concerns, and then going to find answers. There's no fear in Christianity of an intellectual mind. No, God welcomes it. He wants to bring it in to say, come and look and find me faithful and true. Come see a trustworthy, faithful, historically accurate savior named Jesus, who is and was and will always be the Christ. All right, as we jump back into our home group now and discuss some of these things, there's some life group questions that were sent out, but perhaps here's other questions just for you to answer. Who's the king on the throne of your life? Have you ever been reasoned with, with the gospel? What keeps you from receiving the gospel? And are you antagonistic towards the gospel? And if so, why? Is there some sort of root with jealousy or envy? Or what is the cause in your own heart that keeps you from receiving the love and grace through Jesus Christ? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for our time now as we think about the gospel message and how it's come to us and how many of us have been convinced and see it and how we want to share that with others. I just pray for the discussions that are going to happen in the home now. I pray that you would bless them. I pray that they would dig in, be Berean now, to investigate if the things that they have heard and seen here are true. And Father, I pray for anyone who is listening that has yet to be convinced and who has yet to surrender their life to Jesus. I pray that they would see themselves in the men and women in Thessalonica and Berea, those who were at one point unconvinced. And through the examination and the proclamation of the resurrection of Christ have come to faith. They would join the family of God. I pray that you would persuade them now, Father, through the work of your Holy Spirit and gather them in to the diverse, rich, eternal family of your beloved son. Amen.